0: We were actually tasked to do a three-day patrol uh, elsewhere and um, the uh, orders were rescinded in the morning and new maps were issued and we were out um, first thing after lunch um, to follow up something that uh, Bravo Company had found. So yeah, we, we got diverted from one operation to go on another. It was no major change to us. We were expecting to go out anyway. So we had three days rations and out we went.
1: The 18th of August. 1966. It started much like any other day for the men of Delta Company 6 RAR in Nui Dat, South Vietnam. It was to end with one of the most important feats of arms in Australian Army history. It was to end with the Battle of Long Tan. This is the story of one of those men who fought there 54 years ago today. Hello and welcome to Cove Talks. I'm Greg Colton and today we will be marking the 54th anniversary of the Battle of Long Tan and Vietnam Veterans Day with a special Cove Thoughts about the battle. The Australian force at Nui Dat had only been recently established when in the early hours of the morning on the 17th of August, 1966, they came under mortar and recallless rifle fire. The following morning, 105 men from Delta Company, 6 RAR, accompanied by a forward observer party from 161 Battery, Royal New Zealand Artillery, were tasked to clear the firing point, a relatively straightforward patrol which would take them about four kilometres. Outside the perimeter wire of the base at Nui Dat. During that clearance patrol in the afternoon, 11 Platoon, under command of Lieutenant Gordon Sharp, had a fleeting contact with a small group of Viet Cong, probably five or six strong, which they pursued into the undergrowth. Unbeknownst to them, it was to lead them straight into the path. Of a main Viet Cong force, the 275th Viet Cong Main Force Regiment and D 445 Battalion, on its way to attack the Australians at Nui Dat. Over the next three hours, D Company 6RAR was to fight one of the most remarkable battles in Australian military history as it held off wave after wave of enemy attack. By the time they withdrew, Viet Cong casualties were estimated at 245 killed and over 200 wounded. The Australians, however, had lost 18 killed and 24 wounded, a third of their strength. Eleven of those killed were national servicemen. David Sabin was the commander of 12 Platoon, D Company 6 RAR during the Battle of Long Tan, and he was also a national serviceman, drafted by fate due to his birthday being drawn in the ballot, liable for two years' continuous service, followed by three years with the regular army reserve. After his service in Vietnam, he was demobbed and returned to his previous civilian occupation. To mark the 54th anniversary of the Battle of Long Tan, I spoke to David. His observations on training, leadership, and attention to detail are timeless. I started by asking David to reflect on the training he received prior to deploying to South Vietnam.
0: In my opinion, training is the most significant uh, um, activity of all because it, it uh, sets the level of w- at which you're going to go into uh, operations and, and it sets the level of your experience. Um, the training that I uh, faced, First of all, uh, to become an officer, the National Service uh, Scheme um, had a facility w- with uh, Skyville 1OTU for a selected National Servicemen to become junior officers. Um, and that was really intensive uh, with uh, a huge attention to detail. And after graduation and joining a unit, that um, held us in good stead because we were training also um, 50% of, of other National Servicemen. So they weren't uh, sort of army regulars. They had done uh, basic training, and they had done core training, but they were blank sheets so far as uh, experience goes. Um, So the training basically was um, uh, attention to detail, yet maintaining the flexibility. The attention to detail being that our Bible— Number two was um, infantry training volume four of course um, mid sixties vintage and uh, to look at that, which is the um the essence of hundreds of years of soldiering uh, and dwell those lessons into your troops um, uh, in 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 great detail um, the only thing I could give you as an example is to if if you were to go into uh, a Google search on Vietnam soldiers and look at images, um, you could see a whole bunch of uh, training that has been forgotten. Um, in training, you would have all your buttons done up and your sleeves rolled down and your um, your no silver watches and so on. That was fine to get you there, but as soon as you got there, the average soldier tended to forget the the detail.
1: Is it a case of once you deployed, the soldiers felt that training was behind them and they were now real soldiers in operations and some of that didn't matter to them anymore? They were almost, uh, they were too cool for school?
0: That's about the size of it. Um, they thought, well, I'm here. I've, I've, I've graduated. I'm the best there is. Um, uh, you know, um, I, I can do my own thing now. And and that's so wrong. That's that's, that's one of the first lessons that we had to dwell um into our soldiers um uh keep the detail because the detail was hard won by by hundreds of soldiers before you over over lots and lots of years and, and many casualties to learn the fact that you um you need to offer the enemy a minimum amount of uh of opportunity to uh, to cause damage that, as you can and those lessons were too easily lost i found anyway in the jet in the vietnam generation um, and, and they're so basic.
1: And they're so so hard to relearn, aren't they? They're relearned through pain and blood.
0: Well, it's the character of the NCOs and the officers, the junior officers, that makes the difference. Um, are you going to enforce these standards or not? Are you going to set them? And are you going to enforce them? And the ones that don't come up to scratch will be the ones whose troops slacken off and start unbuttoning their shirts and uh, and and take to wearing silver watches in the field and so on. Um, the, the, uh, the, the, the training being the most important phase of battle if you like is is usually forgotten. <laughs> you know, people will think of um, well command and control under fire and and and, and fire control um, those sort of things, but no uh, it, it's what you go into battle with that's most important.
1: So there's a real truth in the old adage that you fight as you train.
0: Um, Absolutely. And uh, um, you've got to be as realistic as you can. um, But having set the standards, keep them. And yet, of of course, you've got to train flexibility into soldiers too. So there's a fine dividing line there.
1: And so you um, arrived in South Vietnam. um, And so um, how did you... Adapt and how did you um, and your platoon and your soldiers adapt to that cultural change and start soldiering in that foreign environment?
0: Arriving in, uh, in Vietnam or in, in a war zone, if you like, is almost certainly going to be a cultural uh, shock to an Australian soldier. Um, and it has to be expected or anticipated as part of your training, particularly your, your coming into theatre training. And so,
1: um, how did you adapt and how did you, um, and your platoon and your soldiers adapt to that cultural change and start soldiering in that foreign environment? Um, because you were there for some time before Long
0: Longtown, weren't you? Um, only 72 days, which comes into another, um, another aspect of, um, Day 72 of a 360-day deployment, you have a major battle. How do you cope with the rest of the time? Um, And we can talk about that later. But um, um, no, to answer your question, um, arriving in Vietnam and and seeing uh, the, the conditions and seeing the reaction of my soldiers to the conditions which I had experienced in foreign countries, but they hadn't. A lot of them, most of them, in fact, hadn't been out of Australia. It's really a matter of sitting them down and talking to them. Um, you know um the the things that they 're visibly shocked at and and the soldier's reaction to shock is usually uh ribald humor um, but uh, uh sitting down and explaining to them that this is this is a new natural a new normal um, and uh, as conversational as as it might be it's not uh, it's not a military thing it's a it's a it's a personal thing um when we arrived in Vietnam and, and we were trucking to the, from the airport to the camp, um, for instance, as an example, we saw um, Vietnamese male soldiers hand-in-hand hand walking down the street. And, of course, that grew a lot of calls from, uh, from the Australian soldiers. Um, but I had to explain to them that this was their culture. This was natural to them. Don't demean their culture. Um, if men walk hand-in-hand hand down the street, in their culture it doesn't raise an eyebrow and we've got to accept that.
1: So um it was far more um, uh, akin to patrolling um in Borneo or uh, 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 Malaysia than it was um potentially some of the more population centric operations.
0: Uh very much very much we were we were specifically denied entry or access to the um villages unless we were Cordoning them for um, the the Republic soldiers um, uh, for searching. Um, so otherwise, we were out in virgin bush rather than dealing on a daily basis with civilians.
1: So the 18th of August um, started like any other day.
0: Absolutely, we were uh, we were actually tasked to do a three day patrol uh, elsewhere, the company and. Um, The uh, orders were rescinded in the morning and new maps were issued and we were out um, first thing after lunch um, to follow up something that uh, Bravo Company had found. So, yeah, we we got diverted from one operation to go on another. It was no major change to us. We were expecting to go out anyway. So we had three days rations and out we went.
1: And when did you realize that actually um, this was something different?
0: (laughs) Um as we were patrolling uh, towards the Long Tan rubber plantation um, our uh, one of our leading platoons gordon sharp's 11 platoon um, came to an obstacle in the form of a road and in the in the course of uh, an obstacle crossing um, they had a contact with um, six or seven um, uh, uh, enemy soldiers uh, so they fired first they initiated the, the contact and um, uh, followed it up and we thought, well, this is this is standard practice, you know. Um, uh, Thirty of us uh, in, as part of a company of 110, um, out on a patrol, and we've met three or four or five or six. Um, that was what we trained for. Um, so um, uh, the, the 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 day started off um, uh, with a, with a, a relatively small contact by one of the platoons with a small number of uh, soldiers who ran away. That was all standard practice for a counter-revolutionary warfare training. Because there were only uh, six or seven of the soldiers, and at least one of them had been very badly hit, and the other one, another one, had been lightly hit. Um, The company commander, uh, quite rightly, detached 11 platoon to go chase because um, uh, a 28 or 29 man platoon could handle four or five soldiers, uh, some of whom were wounded. So he was detached, and that was, again, standard practice for our counter revolutionary warfare training. Um, In about 20 minutes, they ran into a much larger number of troops, and um, the volume of fire that was pointed at eleven platoon and the overshoots that were coming across our head was the first indication that we had that um, this was going to be something abnormal
1: so you're a, you're a, you're a junior officer, you're a platoon commander with your platoon um probably the first major contact you've had um, since arriving in Vietnam.
0: Never mind, the, never mind the major, this was the first contact from my platoon. So you've
1: gone, you've gone from that rush of adrenaline and excitement that this is it, this is for real, you're going to do your job. Yes. You start realising something's different. Can you talk us through, as a junior commander, how your thought process went? What were you thinking about?
0: Well, um, the, the, at, at the first firing, the the, the, uh, the first port was uh, a Lucky Eleven Platoon. Lucky Gordon Sharp. He's uh, he's had a contact, which is what we're here for, and it seems to be a handleable contact in a rubber plantation, which is pretty good um, on a nice, fine, bright, sunny day. Um, he's got everything going his own way. Uh, all he's got to do is uh, is uh, what he's trained to do, and uh, you know he'll have a military cross by Christmas time, sort of thing all gung-ho and uh, and uh, controlled because their the training up until that very afternoon had been on um, the training and the expectation had been summed up in counter-revolutionary warfare um, as the uh, as the minutes passed we realized that uh, this was something much much bigger and this is where the flexibility and the training took over um, we, uh, we, we were trained to expect the unexpected. But not to fear the unexpected, because the unexpected was just part of your plan. Um, it, it, it it happens to be under the contingencies paragraph. If if something doesn't work out the way you think it should, then you are trained uh, to explore the options and cope with them, not to go to pieces. And that's what we were doing. Uh, we were saying, well, there's more of them there. Uh, number one, uh, watch, watch ourselves more, because if there's more in one place, there's likely more in another. Um, watch your ammunition because in those days um, we were only given three 20-round magazines. So our frontline ammunition per soldier was 60 rounds for the for the rifles. Um, so those sort of things uh, were automatically in your head. Uh, you know, okay, um, there's something bigger out there. We've got to expect um, uh, more opposition, which is more firepower, um, slower. Counter revolutionary warfare, you've got to act really fast in order to try to um, chase or cut off the enemy because they're in small groups, highly mobile, don't want to contact. And so we've got to be aggressive. Um, In conventional warfare, which basically Long Tan turned out to be, um, we don't have to be so fast because we're not trying to cut them off. Indeed, we're not going to be attacking them. We're going to be in defense, which was a very small part of our. Our counter-revolutionary warfare training most of it was aggression um very little of it was defense so we had to suddenly think wait wait a minute <laughs> they are going to attack us this is a reversion of what we've trained for but we've got to deal with it and not only that but um the defensive training that we had um implied um, um claymore mines set out and wire and dug in and, and maybe even overhead protection and. Uh, and artillery support on call and so on. None of this was available to us out in the rubber plantation. We had no digging in, no wire, no no claymores. <laughs> um, so, yes, yeah, a completely different mindset. But um, this is where the flexibility uh, clicked in. We, we weren't trained as one-trick ponies. We were trained as being versatile, fighting to the conditions we met, as it were, even though the training was very limited. We we, we had the principles in hand.
1: So you're there as the platoon commander and uh, you then became decisively engaged yourselves?
0: Um, yes, uh, as a period of time, the first part of the battle, uh, 11 um, went and got stuck into it um basically um after the first half hour 10 platoon was sent around to do a right hook to relieve pressure and withdraw 11 but they ran into further enemies so they had a, a, a stash a stash um which incidentally um, in, they fired first and uh 11 uh, 12 platoon was in defense of chq uh, at that stage when we realized 10 platoon wouldn't be able to fulfill their mission the uh Left hook had failed, so um, the company commander sent me on a right hook to get 11. Um, so it wasn't until an hour, an hour and a half into the battle that we actually advanced to contact. Uh, we, 12 percent advanced to contact. So by that time, we'd, we were well and truly aware of the size of the enemy, the intensity of the fight. Um, uh, this was just not in the, in, in the uh, training manual. We couldn't stop the thing and say uh, call forward the DS and say that something's wrong here, change the plans. We uh, it was what was being served up to us and uh, and so we 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 uh, adapted to what we saw the conditions were. As ten platoon came back, two sections of eleven platoon or twelve platoon went out on a right hook. Um, the other, the third section, being retained by company headquarters for defense until 10 uh, returned to them um so uh with 20 men uh, 12 platoon went out put themselves in a position where they guarded 11's back door until they could withdraw and then and then pulled back to company
1: that um that hour and a half that you were in reserve and guarding company headquarters with minimal information coming in that must have been one of the longest hour and a halves of your life (laughs)
0: <laughs> the longest and the shortest yes both um, um rem- remembering in those days that the platoon only had one radio uh, the biggest the weren't um available to talk to the platoon commander other than by field signals so um nowadays i understand that every soldier has a radio and can talk um but essentially um i was on i was listening into the radio to the traffic between uh, company and uh a 10 and 11 platoons, so I knew basically what was happening. But the diggers um, didn't, so I, uh, part of my task was to try to keep the, the corporals informed of what was happening, because otherwise they were uh, they, they were uninformed. Uh, so passage of communication in those days was not as good as or as simple, or as easy as it was uh, later when everyone had a radio and you could tell them what was happening. Yes.
1: So would you, when you, when you reflect back on on the Battle of Long Tan, as a junior commander, what was your biggest single challenge? Was it situational awareness? You've mentioned command and control. Was it the fear of the unknown? What, when you reflect back, is the one thing which sort of defined for you is your biggest challenge at that battle?
0: I think um, ensuring that the platoon came along with me as we changed um, uh, from counter-revolutionary warfare to conventional. It it wasn't. We didn't have the the advantage of um, uh, blowing the whistle and saying, "Now listen, guys, this is here's the whiteboard. This is what's happening." Um, Basically, we went out there with counter-revolutionary warfare in our minds, and on the job, we had to convert that into, uh, "No, we're not going to chase them. They're going to chase us. Um, We can't just." Let our machines fire, suppressing fire, and waste a hundred rounds of M- MG. We've got to wait, and and as they come to us, we've got to select targets and individually uh, deal with that. Um, those sort of things that had been trained into them, and they were, they were pretty good at uh, in a theoretical um, uh, manner of looking at it. And on the job, we had to uh, change that perception in the form of my orders, um, the orders that I gave. Um, uh mostly by field signals, you know. Um dig in and uh, dig a shell scrape if you can and um conserve your ammo. Don't fire until you see a target. Um yeah you know, there's artillery coming, beware uh, there's going to be shells passing overhead. Um n- new experiences were all um backing up on one another. And uh, fortunately the, the platoon had been trained with sufficient flexibility and trust in their in their NCOs and and, uh, and myself to accept what they could see was happening um, and react accordingly. Um, and, and the same thing happened in the company. Uh, uh, the same thing was happening throughout the company. No one panicked and cut and ran, which was in itself a, a, a very significant uh, factor. Um, but everyone just sort of uh, gritted their teeth and said, um, you know, we didn't sign on for this, but we got it. So <laughs> this is what we're going to do. So, um, so it
1: it really was low level leadership uh, in war.
0: Absolutely, um, right down to the NCOs. The NCOs had to um, had to crawl forward and uh, and deliver news to to the to the front troops, which was only a, a rub, uh, two rubber trees away. So it's um, uh, it, it's the it's the ability to calm the troops and know let them know that you're in control even though that what you're in control of is, is is not controllable um we are reacting real time to a changing situation and they've got to have the confidence that we know what we're doing which was only put into them by training back in australia uh, and showing them that we knew what we were doing we knew that we were that uh, uh, you know what our training was would re- would give to them the skills that they would need, and yet maintain the flexibility. So if we asked them to to, to guard that arc, and the threat came from another arc, um, you know they could seamlessly change the situational awareness. Um, uh, again, the training can only do so so much. But once you've got the, the the format in 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 control, and once you know how to do it, then you can do anything with it. Um, the 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 situation changed very dramatically throughout that afternoon. In in much much more than uh, just the enemy. Um, after uh, after about an hour and a half, um, we had a a, a very very violent electrical monsoon storm and And suddenly, um, visibility was uh, half what it was before, and everyone was wet and uh, movement was difficult. Um, and th- everything changed. Um, we had a fight with headquarters uh, getting enough um, artillery in support, um, calling the reinforcements that that uh, were delayed and delayed and delayed, um, getting an ammunition resupply. all of those things um, at the company level were changes to norms and were resisted by the, the people in charge of those norms, um, battalion commander, the, the task force commander, the artillery commander, the APC uh, commander, although they were very willing and eager to help um, for, uh, using the APCs as, ex- as an example, the task force commander wouldn't give approval for them to leave this perimeter, um, so they, they were delayed. Uh, in training, although we'd never... Really held hands training uh, in Australia with the APCs. We knew the principles, um, uh, and it was never considered that that if we didn't, if we called for them, we wouldn't get them. <laughs> it was never considered that if we if we called for artillery, we wouldn't get artillery. Uh, and yet that was the case. We we got uh, one battery supporting um, eleven platoon, and then we called for a second battery to support ten platoon, and it was uh, it was denied at first. I mean. Um so these sort of things um were wrinkles in the in the changing plan that we had to adjust to. Um the command and control all worked at our level. Um we had comms, fortunately. We didn't lose comms uh throughout the uh throughout the whole battle except when the radio sets were were shot out from us. Um, but the radio sets worked very well and we were able to control uh from on that manner. The, uh, the the fear of the unknown uh, uh, had been the, the fear of the unknown had been trained out of us. We we were very flexible and we we basically treated an unknown as a new challenge, um, and that part and parcel of our training. Because uh, I'd have to go back to our training and, and suggest to you that our training was such that we didn't train to a standard which was the pass mark to go to Vietnam. That is a a Canungra standard. If you pass Canungra, you're good enough to go to Vietnam. We didn't treat that. We trained to be the best you can be, which means that whenever the battalion commander's um, ROs said that at the end of this week, you, you need to be at this level. You can do X miles in Y hours under Z control load. And we we pushed that. Uh, we, we, if we achieved that on the second day, we'd up it on the third day, up it on the fourth day, and so on. And we we per- perpetually said, we will train to be the best you can be.
1: The relentless pursuit of professional excellence.
0: <laughs> that is correct. A- and including the perseverance that that requires. The attitude that um, there's always something more in you, uh, you're not dead until you're dead, was our was our catch cry you're not dead until you're dead if something unexpected happens you've got the capacity to deal with it deal with it um and and in fact that came out in spades because every time we did something at long tan the enemy counted it um mostly unknowingly but but the fact was that it was counted and we had to come back and think well wait a minute there's something else we can do and we'll do it and one example was there 11 platoon out there not trapped but but uh, having had enough casualties, not to be able to cleanly withdraw and break contact and withdraw. So ten platoons sent out left hook, um, met more enemies, so failed and returned. Twelve platoon came out right hook and hit the enemy encircling eleven. So we we had the task then of keeping the corridor open. Everything changed all the time, and we had to say no, no, we've got we've got more. We we can we've got an answer for this. We've we are able to overcome this problem and, uh, and uh, deal with it, and we did. And when we finally got back, uh, um, 11 platoon finally was able to cut and break contact and come back to 12. And 11 and 12 came back to company headquarters, and 10 platoon was already there. So then we formed a company perimeter probably about half an hour after the battle finished. And, and once again, um, forming a perimeter, it wasn't over. Because the, the, the enemy knew then where we were. We, he had been confused before because we were three separate platoons in three separate places, two and three hundred yards apart. Now he knew where we all were. Um, and this is the, the, the season of the uh, human wave attacks that we experienced. Again, not in the rule book, not in the training manual. <laughs> um, and uh, fortunately, we had uh, managed the resupply, the, the ammunition resupply by that stage. So by the time twelve got back with eleven, and we had a, a limited resupply of ammunition, um, went, then we formed a perimeter, and for the next half hour, um, basically we were resisting human wave attacks with um, ultimately artillery falling uh, uh, in some cases twenty-five yards from our perimeter. This was one o five artillery. We had one o five one five fives in support, but they were in they were firing in depth. So a 105 round was landing for 15 or 20 minutes of the battle, and a 105 round was exploding on our perimeter between 25 and 50 yards out um, at least once a second because we had, by that time, uh, uh, 18 105 guns firing in support. It was um, regimental artillery, which I think was the first time since the Korean War (laughs) that they had um, uh, fired regimental missions. So everyone was learning, and not not just the people out the front, but the the, uh, people in the headquarters and the artillery people, they were all learning different things at Long Tan.
1: So um, it's no exaggeration to say that the Battle of Long Tan has gone down as one of the finest feats of arms in the history of the Australian Army, certainly one of the finest defensive actions um, by a company-sized organisation. You referred earlier um, to the challenge then that was day seventy-two of a three hundred and sixty-five-day tour. Yes, that's right. What are some of the leadership challenges that you then had afterwards?
0: Well, the the, the, the basically the leadership challenges were: um, how do you get over this? How do you how do you get people who were, who survived the battle and were rattled by it, as as you know, everyone was to a different degree. And the realization that uh that, that we're only one fifth of the way through the tour, um there's gonna be another long tan and maybe another and maybe a fourth, you know? who knows. Um so really the uh the the settling the, the troops down, um uh debrief them as much as you can, um, although it wasn't for a certain time that we we understood what what had actually happened, uh, settle them down, do the do the necessary um, uh, recuperation work, like like um, replace the the casualties and re, rebuild your units and so on, um, and uh, you know, step outside the wire again. And, and that's basically a leadership thing. Um, uh, if if the leaders, uh, NCOs and the sergeant and the and the, the platoon commander balk at going outside the wire again, well then you can't expect the troops to go. So you're really setting an example of saying, look, yes, long-term happened. Um, uh, you know, we, we, we walked away from the battlefield, or at least two-thirds of us did. We suffered uh, a third casualties, which, which was a severe hit to morale, obviously, but we had to get over it. And, um, uh, and basically, the 12th uh, return was the least hit, and we were out back on operations in, in two weeks or so. I think 10 platoon was uh, rebuilt a week or two after that, and 11 platoon, who had suffered the most damage, uh, were back on operations in about uh, a month or five weeks.
1: I suppose my final question is, um, looking back on your experience in South Vietnam and at Long Tan, if you had one piece of advice you could pass on to junior leaders within the army now, what would it be?
0: Well, I'll go back to where we started, uh, training. If you are Trained well, and if you have well-trained troops, they can handle whatever they give. They have the self-discipline and the control to do the job, but also the flexibility to uh, to to do to, to master the changes as they happen. Um, so the accent is on is on the preparation, uh, which we referred to a bit earlier: preparation and planning.
1: The men who fought at Long Tan, indeed. All those men and women who served in South Vietnam left a legacy for those of us who serve now to live up to. But the lessons David spoke about today, training, self-discipline, flexibility, preparation and planning, they're timeless concepts as relevant to soldiering now as they were 54 years ago. To be a member of the profession of arms is to seek the relentless pursuit of professional excellence. It's a lesson that has been written in blood. Cove Thoughts is produced by the team at The Cove, part of the Australian Army's Professional Military Education Network. For more information, visit www. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the contributors and do not necessarily reflect the position of the Australian Army, the Department of Defence or the Australian Government.